they like to talk about communism with Chinese characteristics. I really think it's colonialism with communist characteristics. And people have shied away from that kind of language, but I think that's where we are in terms of how they approach Africa. Welcome to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Andrew Holland. This week's podcast is with Robin Cleveland and Carolyn Bartholomew, the chair and vice chair of the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. Robin Cleveland was the chair of the commission until January 1. She had a distinguished career, including years in the Senate on the Committees on Intelligence and Foreign Relations and in the personal office of Senator Mitch McConnell. Carolyn Bartholomew, the vice chair, served as counsel, legislative director, and chief of staff to now speaker Nancy Pelosi. For those not familiar with the U.S.-China Economic Security Review Commission, it is a congressionally chartered body that recommends policy to the Congress. And I think it's a good example of how to build bipartisan policy. We discussed their recently released 2020 report to Congress. The key findings in the report are that China is increasingly aggressive around the world across many fronts, Specifically, ones we discussed were Chinese involvement in Africa, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and then a broader question of great power competition. Are we in a systemic struggle between the U.S.-led, open, liberal system and a Chinese authoritarian system? It's an important question. A note, we recorded this podcast before President Biden was inaugurated, but the lessons we discussed are relevant as the new administration and the new Congress begins. Now, let's get into the show. Robin Cleveland and Carolyn Bartholomew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting us. Well, you both are commissioners with the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. Uh, Maybe we should start with what the commission is and what your mandate is, and then we can go into your recently released 2020 report to Congress and the extensive findings within it. But why, why don't we start? What is your mandate? So thank you again for having us. The commission was established just about 20 years ago with the view that we should consider the economic and security implications of the U.S.-China relationship. We have a broad mandate to address issues from energy to cybersecurity, the threat from China's nuclear capability, and economic investment both here and in China. We are comprised of 12 members appointed by House and Senate leadership, We are bipartisan and year in and year out, I think our great value has been that we report almost consistently unanimously on our results. And so we we think of ourselves as being one of the last bipartisan voices in this town in terms of of an outcome. So I think that makes the report compelling for the past administration as well as future administrations in terms of our coming together in, in consensus. Carolyn, is there anything else I've missed there? Uh, No, just to add that we are, as Robin said, bipartisan, proudly bipartisan, but we were established by Congress to advise Congress on the the U.S.-China issues. And Congress established us when they voted to essentially uh, pave the way for China to get into the World Trade Organization. And there was obviously lingering concern. They established two commissions. The other one, the other China commission, focuses on human rights. And we focus, as, as Robin said, on the national security implications of the U.S.-China economic relationship. So some of us have worked together for many years in different capacities, and some people are brand new, and we have a terrific staff that we are 
quite heavily dependent on. Yes, indeed. It's really an important model and, and something that perhaps for a different day would be interesting to look at for, for other areas. But I wanna go into the report that you've recently released and, and you, you put out one of these reports every Congress, is that right? So every two years? Every year. Oh, every year. So, yes. so, so in reading this report, one of the things that really came through for me is just that China is increasingly aggressive across a lot of sectors, a lot of areas, both within China and in their near abroad, you know, South China Sea area, and then also around the world. Maybe you'd like, you'd like to comment on, on what you see on that and what your findings or for why that is and, and why we see an increasingly aggressive China. Sure. I think that over the course of the Chinese Communist Party history, there has been an assumption that the United States has been the primary opponent. But what we've seen in the last decade or so, and especially under Chairman Xi, is an intensification of that ideological competition. They've shifted from trying to catch up economically, technologically, and in terms of quality of life for their citizens to surpassing the United States. And what's important is they're trying to use their economic strength to secure political and security outcomes. So for example, BRI, which is their signature foreign policy initiative, is a tool that the CCP is using around the world to export and to establish itself at the top, the China at the top of a, of a hierarchy where they draw on the world's natural resources, talent and technology, but don't allow access to their own markets. BRI is a continuation of patterns that we've seen in the past where they control and steal information, compel tech transfer. They're exporting uh, surveillance to help other countries silence critics. They're disregarding standards of social safety. We saw that certainly in COVID. And they're protecting their domestic companies at the expense of free market principles. And I think part of the reason we're seeing that expansion is because they are starved for capital. China is in a very difficult debt situation. They've zoomed from six to almost $40 trillion in internal debt before COVID. And the increase in non-performing loans, defaults, the shaky internal economic situation is driving this need to expand abroad. And I think that's a significant shift and it gives the United States some leverage because they are going to need US capital to sustain their economic position. And we can talk a little bit about markets and decisions that have been made on, on the Security and Exchange Commission if you're interested, but I think I'll turn to Carolyn to illustrate how that economic expansion has been illustrated in their blueprint in Africa. Yes, sure. I'll talk about Africa, but first I just want to go back to a couple of points that Robin made. When the, when the CCP founded the PRC, the People's Republic of China, in 1949, they considered the United States a dangerous opponent. For the past decades, they have considered us a strategic competitor. So even when we have not seen them as a strategic competitor, they have considered us to be a strategic competitor. They have moved beyond uh, Deng Xiaoping's concept of hide your capabilities and bide your time. They are no longer feeling a need to hide their capabilities and no longer feeling a need to bide their time. I think right. that under, under Xi Jinping, they believe that their time has come. They are working to export a model of what they call the community of common human destiny. This is a community that would echo China's worldview, 
would defer to its priorities and would exercise fealty to its form of government. It's a model of sort of a state-managed economy, economic growth with authoritarianism. And with that, I will talk a little bit about at China in Africa. We held a hearing on China sure. in Africa this year because we see Africa, the continent of Africa, which is a, a blueprint and a test bed for this whole concept of a community of common human destiny. They're using a whole of government approach there. They are expanding their influence in countries around the continent through infrastructure development and lending. Infrastructure includes digital and communications technology. They're training journalists. They're training political parties. They're increasing the numbers of military to military exchanges. They are either getting leasing rights or ownership rights in ports around the continent, which raise questions about both power projection capabilities beyond the Asia Pacific and their intentions with that. Africa has a lot of um, important uh, critical minerals and resources that, that China needs access to. They have changed the mode by which they're acquiring a number of those resources Instead of just buying the resource itself, they're buying the mines that, that have the resource, mm -hmm. which also has potential national security consequences for us. Some of the products, some of the resources include cobalt and uh, titanium, I think Robin was one. and, and oh, Vanadium, manganese, vanadium. copper, platinum. Right. Yeah. These, are, these are minerals and resources that are important, uh, both in our defense industry and also in technology. And so there's you know, growing concern that they were, are cornering the market on these important uh, minerals and, and resources with of course the threat that they could make sure that we don't have access to them if they want to. Interesting. And Robin, I wanna go back to something you had said, you know, when you, you kind of characterized BRI almost as a, a mercantilist sort of approach, mm -hmm. you know, a, a hub and spoke where you, you bring in natural resources and, and in China, it, it gets, it becomes something that, that's then exported for capital, which mm -hmm. is, this is an economic model from 17th century France. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this, this is a, this is not the, the sort of open liberal American led order that we had been trying to pull them into by right. having them join the, the WTO. So that their model for growth right now is this, and you can kind of see it in Africa too. It, what they're going towards is natural resources, is you know this hub and spoke model, right? Right. Well, and I think we've seen a doubling down on this approach where, where some countries uh, have modified and, and recognized that, that shared global growth is something that benefits both the individual country and, and the community of nations. China's doubled down on approach and has defined this dual circulation model, which is, I think, uh, shockingly misnamed because there's no dual circulation in and out. What it is, is drawing in talent, technology, and natural resources, yeah. and trying to build up the consumer market inside China while keeping other companies and countries out. And mm -hmm. so they've recognized that export-led led growth has presented risks both to their supply chain and, and to, to the stability of their market. So they are intensifying the effort to shut down any kind of access by foreign companies and countries and rely exclusively on consumer demand locally. Yeah. 
I don't think it's going to work, but it, you know, the model remains to be seen. So, but it is a threat to, as Carolyn outlined with countries that, that are uh, heavily dependent upon their patrimony of natural resources. And China is engaged in, they like to talk about communism with Chinese characteristics. I really think it's colonialism with communist characteristics and people have shied away from that kind of language, but I think that's where we are in terms of how they approach Africa. Yeah, and that's interesting. Carolyn, more on Africa here. Of course, the African engage or the Chinese engagement with Africa goes back multiple decades. You know, the going out policy precedes the, the Belt and Road Initiative or One Belt, One Road uh, and all that. Have you seen a substantial change or increase in the, the engagement of, of China towards Africa and African nations? Absolutely. Of course, there are some longstanding historical relationships between uh, the people of China and, and the government of China and, and some of the people and particularly some of the liberation movements in, in Africa. Yeah. But there's, there's been a dramatic step up in terms of the Chinese presence and activities across the continent. The offices of the African Union, the African Union in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, were designed by the Chinese, funded by the Chinese, built by the Chinese, and managed by the Chinese. That's a perfect (laughs) example of the kind of way that they're doing this. There have been some costs to that, of course, that the technology they have found that servers that were being installed in inside that building have been transmitting information back about what's going on inside that building. There was just another story that came out recently about surveillance, surveillance equipment, sending images and things back to uh, back to China. But they've been doing this in a number of places. Robin mentioned sort of neo-colonialism, which I think is interesting for a couple of reasons. One of which is there is some backlash against the what the, you know the Chinese yeah. presence in certain places in Africa, starting with a lot of African domestic production, the same way as it happened in the United States, has been displaced by cheap Chinese goods. And so you had small producers in different places in Africa who have lost their own market at home with what they're doing. Of course, there were a terrible incidents of discrimination against Africans when the virus uh, broke out in Wuhan, um, which, which um, resulted in actually demarches being done by African countries to raise concern about how their citizens were being treated. But we're seeing a dramatic increase both in investment, mainly through Belt and Road, which raises questions about you know, debt, debt and, and what kind of debt burden these countries are having. One thing Robin didn't mention, neither of us have mentioned yet, is we've seen some evidence that the Chinese government is using the troops it is sending through um, UN peacekeeping operations to protect Chinese economic interests in some of these countries, which is against the mandate of you know, what PKO, PKO troops are supposed to be doing. So there's, there's just a rise of different aspects. I'm particularly concerned about media and the, and the information, much of the information that Africans are hearing in countries around the continent is either coming from journalists who have been trained in Africa or it is free uh, Chinese content, Chinese worldview content that is being pushed out uh, onto the African airwaves. And you know that's something the US and other countries need to be thinking about is making sure people have access to a free flow of information. Now, I think, and ASP has done events on, on this, Aside from some counterterrorism stuff, it's been largely not active in in Africa for for too long. You know, they, whether it's bilateral or multilateral stuff. You know, it, the U.S. tends to overlook, I think, the African continent. You have a, an argument to Congress about 
the African Growth and Opportunity Act, and there's there's the recently passed law that changed the uh, U.S. development finance corporations and and this sort of stuff. Is there uh, more that the U.S. should be doing towards that Africa and African nations? Absolutely. I think that we have ignored the continent too much. It's an area of tremendous growth. It's got a very young population. um, And we've had a very old fashioned view of of what the continent is. You know, people think of of starvation and they think of poverty and they think of, of all of these sort of downsides of what's happened. But there's a lot of technological growth going on. There's a lot of innovation innovation that's going on. And there's, there's just this burgeoning group of young people who we are missing the boat with in terms of both values and opportunities. I think it will be really important for the new administration to engage far more with African countries, to work with private companies, public-private partnerships, to increase our presence. And, you know, we are never going to be able to outspend the Chinese on uh, the Chinese government on Belt and Road initiatives. Right. But what we really need to do is we really need to focus on where our development assistance provides value added. And, and one of those, of course, is technical support. Some of it is health. There are things that we do extremely well, and we need really to be focusing on those. I share Carolyn's enthusiasm for engagement with countries in Africa because there is this um, demographic that suggests significant changes ahead. I want to point out, though, that because of BRI and because of China's predatory approach, 24 of the 50 countries that borrow from China are in Africa and are very poor. And when they went through the shock of COVID, they asked for debt payments to be suspended. And every country agreed to that, that common approach to debt suspension, except China, that engaged in bilateral bullying to renegotiate terms that are not transparent and are not accountable. And I have a lot of concerns about the United States providing debt relief or development assistance in a context where China is free riding. And I think pressure to to ensure that collectively we hold China to account when it comes to their approach on the continent is as critical as the affirmative efforts to provide development assistance. Because otherwise we're just pouring money into one side and then China's taking advantage on the other. Yeah, exactly right. We don't want to have something where their debt is preferred to other debt. And we, we've actually seen this in the, the Zambia recent. Um, exactly. Yeah. So let's change gears and, and talk a little bit more of, of closer in towards China. And of course, threats to Taiwan are nothing new from, from China, but you do highlight it in, in this report. And I think the imposition of the national security law in Hong Kong actually adds some urgency and maybe changes uh, the views from Taiwan. And the fact that, that the Chinese felt like they had to go in and crack down on, in Hong Kong, to me at least, shows a bit of insecurity from the mm-hmm. Chinese government in that they, they don't feel secure enough from the people of Hong Kong that they have to do something. And, and that makes me worry about some irrational things to do with, with Taiwan, incursions or military or non-military things, uh, uncertain. But what, what I, does the report have to say about Taiwan? I think, let me just make a quick point on Taiwan and then turn to Carolyn's expertise on, uh, sorry, on Hong Kong and turn to Carolyn's expertise on Taiwan. Sure. We should all be concerned about that national security law, not just the citizens of Hong Kong, yes. because that law is so sweeping in scope that if you criticize the CCP, 
and you are traveling to a country that has an extradition treaty with China, you are at risk. If you are traveling through Hong Kong, you are at risk. If you are a business person or a family member of a business person in Hong Kong and the Chinese government doesn't like what you say, you are at risk. So it is draconian and sweeping in scope and I, I think unprecedented. And you're right to raise it as, while the Hong Kong model is a little different than Taiwan and Taiwan's had a history of a slightly different history, it does reflect the speed and, and the, the um, brutality with which Beijing's willing to act in its interests. So I'll turn to Carolyn for, to talk about our recommendations and, and how the commission viewed the Taiwan challenges. Yeah. Yes, we've obviously been very concerned about what's happening in Hong Kong. Some of us, Robin and I, have been, been working on Hong Kong issues for 30 years now, and you know we're shocked and dismayed at how quickly and savagely, the Chinese government implemented the national security law. I did want to mention one other set of people who uh, could be adversely impacted by the national security law, uh, mm-hmm. which I've just been learning about, really, and that is journalists who have been on the other end of emails or tweets by somebody who has been picked up and arrested under the national security law. So that means that journalists anywhere in the world who are in communication with some of the people in Hong Kong could be at risk. It's a huge issue because people people can be extradited. And you, know, you don't have to be in China or in Hong Kong to be picked up for these things the way that China has implemented that law. And the consequences for Taiwan, right? I mean, it, it's there have been positive and negative consequences of this. I think that it has made um, a number of people in Taiwan recognize the value and, and the fragility of what they have. You know, there are 23 million people who have overcome enormous obstacles in, in Taiwan to have this vibrant democracy that we have strong economic relationships with. I think that had Hong Kong not cracked down on the protests that the way that they did uh, when the national security law was first being mentioned, I think that the fact that they did that actually helped to ensure uh, President Tsai Ing-wen's uh, re-election. So mm. we are concerned, particularly coming up on the centennial of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party, which 2021 is, that regaining Taiwan is an important part of, of the mandate that Xi Jinping sees for himself and, and how history will view him, which raises a lot of concerns. The Chinese are being much more aggressive in the activities, the actions that they're taking towards Taiwan. They are increasing the use of gray zone activities, which are, you know, sort of short of war and raise all sorts of questions about how how do we respond? How do the people of Taiwan respond? How does the Taiwan military respond? One of the things that we recommended, we recommended four things uh, regarding Taiwan in our report. One of them is that Congress should consider enacting legislation to make the director of the American Institute of Taiwan, which is our de facto representative in Taiwan, Mm -hmm. a presidential nomination subject to the advice and consent of the US Senate. Now we did not take a position on whether that should be an ambassadorial position or not, but we do believe that it's an important symbol to show continuing strong support in the Congress for Taiwan. Congress has been a really important participant and supporter of Taiwan ever going back to when relations were broken by the U.S. with Taiwan as the U.S. recognized China. And this action would both, as I said, be a symbol, but it would also reestablish as Congress's oversight role of the Taiwan Relations Act. There's an authority in there that this would actually be, you know, reestablishing 
the authority of that. So I think that that's an important thing. We think Congress should encourage the administration to include Taiwan in any multilateral efforts to coordinate and strengthen supply chains. Obviously, supply chains, protection of supply chains, the creation of supply chains, those issues have been really visible because of COVID-19, the lack of PPE that people are being able to access, um, just making sure that we have access to pharmaceuticals that we need, um, equipment that we need that is being made either here in the United States or by close allies so we don't have to worry about the politicization of access to those materials. Yeah, and of course, Taiwanese-based companies are, are major parts of major American company supply chains, technology companies, yes. I, I think. Especially. Semiconductors, exactly. There are, yeah. there are a lot right. of, there's yeah. a lot of talent on, yeah. on Taiwan that, that we can and should be taking advantage of as we rebuild supply chains. Yeah, absolutely. What are the, the military options that the U.S. Or, or security options that the U.S. should be thinking about in terms of Taiwan, we've heard some debate recently about you know, should there be more U.S. overt pre- protection for Taiwan or anything like that. Do you have any any recommendations for, you know, what what can the U.S. what should Congress be recommending to the to the military to be doing in light of all these these incoming threats? So one important thing that, that we actually did not make one of our recommendations, but that the, but that the Hill is moving through the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, is yep. the Pacific Deterrence Act. And we think that that's a very important project. It's an important initiative to make sure that the U.S. has a, a continuing and strong presence in the region generally, which I think will also help to dissuade China from any adventurism, right? If they know that we have a presence there and we are working closely with our allies, I think that that will serve, uh, I hope, to dissuade China from from any, as I said, any adventurism that they might be doing. There have been a number of of sales of military equipment, and I think that that those should continue. There have been some visits by U.S. US military people to Taiwan. I think that those should continue. And you know, I, I think that the new administration has an opportunity to build on some of the positive things that the Trump administration did um, in U.S.-China issues and and in, in support of Taiwan. And I hope that they will continue to do that. Robin. Yeah, I think the two other points are the high-level visits have been across the board, both military and economic officials. I think it was incredibly important that the Secretary of Health and Human Services visited in the context of COVID. And I think the the Trump administration's public disclosure and support of the six principles that define define the relationship with China is is terribly important and and ought to be repeated and enunciated in every context. You know, one of the things, just to turn a little bit away from Taiwan that we didn't talk about at the beginning was the principal recommendation that the commission agreed on, and we had 19 recommendations, but the, the first recommendation was the principle of reciprocity should be invoked, should be included in every piece of legislation and in policy that bears on China. So that means if China denies U.S. access, European access, Australian access to social media platforms, which they do. They, they've walled off any international social media platforms. We, too, should take that stance. And the same is true with our companies, with our journalists, with our diplomats, with not-for-profit for organizations, that we need to, to be serious about asserting standards of fairness. 
And there's been an open door and China has driven right through it. And, or the CCP, I wanna distinguish that, the CCP has taken advantage of multiple opportunities. And we need to begin to realign and reassert the principles of reciprocity. I agree with that completely. I wanna go back just to one thing on Taiwan, which is that the government and the people of Taiwan have done an extraordinary jo uh, mm -hmm. job in responding to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And unfortunately, the CCP has prevented Taiwan from participating in multi multilateral organizations where they could be sharing the lessons that they've learned and, and uh, you know, helping to address the, the pandemic. And that's one of the real consequences of the things like the way China blocks Taiwan from participating in, in international organizations. Yeah, as we're, as we're closing here, I kind of want to get to this idea. I, I'm really struck by this mercantilist idea of China and you know how it's becoming more of almost returning to this idea of the return of the mid Middle Kingdom, right? The, the Chinese name for, for China is, is the Middle Kingdom. And so it's seeing itself again as the center of the world around which everything else revolves. And that is a real challenge to the American-led international order even though some of our critics sometimes have gone after us saying that, it's, re it's really not meant to be that way. It's a networked system in which many, you know, people are open to choose and do what they want and, and buy and sell from who they want and to market-based system. The Chinese system obviously is not. It's preferring its own people and its own companies and its own politically connected companies above others. Mm -hmm. How does the United States challenge this? How does the, not even the United States, the U.S. led international order, you know, because because we, we are best when we're working with our allies and on these things. What should the incoming Biden administration be doing in this macro sense of, of challenging this, this challenge to the liberal order? I'm not sure that I would position us as advising the administration, as Carolyn pointed out at the beginning, of we course, advise yeah, Congress, advise Congress. But Yep. But the value of the report it is, is that it's bipartisan, so it offers a template or a policy template for, for anyone to consider. I think that the, you've drawn attention to the critical issue, which is that China needs U.S., European, and South Asian and Latin American markets because it needs capital in order to keep this vast state-run enterprise, these the state-run enterprises, functional, employing people and, and producing and manufacturing, they need capital. And that's where collaborating with other countries could come into play, that whether it's regulating Chinese raising funds on uh, stock exchanges, yeah. whether it is supervising more effectively the tracking of bonds and Chinese securities where money is flowing into China, that's the space where we have some leverage to begin to shift or pressure China away from this mercantilist approach. Carolyn, anything else yeah, in terms uh, of- First, Andrew, it's an important observation you make, but I, I think that it's also really important to recognize that China is using economic coercion for political ends. Yes. We can really see that in the way that it's treating Australia right now. I think the ham-handedness with which they've gone about a number of things, both that kind of coercion, the wolf warrior diplomacy, you know, attacking yeah. a U.S. senator on Twitter, all of these things that they're doing are creating opportunities for the U.S. to sort of move back into the space. I think one of the most important things that the Biden administration can do 
is that they could rebuild our alliances and rebuild trust that the United States, you know, is a trustworthy partner and is intent in working with other countries and not just out there on our own. I think things will be much more effective. Obviously, what China is doing is a challenge to free market capitalism. When China joined the World Trade Organization, some of us had questions. You know, some people thought, oh, this is great. This will change China. And some of us at the time said, well, we don't know if it's going to change China or China is going to change the WTO. And indeed, China has changed the WTO. So we need to reinvigorate all of these international um, organizations that, that we use. And I, what I really want to close on, though, is we started talking about, you know, the, the way that the, China, the Chinese government views us. As there's increased repression inside of China, Xi Jinping and, and his cohort are increasing fervor in Chinese nationalism among the com Chinese Communist Party members across the country. And one of the things that they are exhorting them to do is to be the grave diggers of capitalism. And that phrase, I think, is something that, you know, I, that we need to keep in mind, that what their goal is as they try to position them at the top of this global hierarchy. It's really something that they that they talk about being the grave diggers of capitalism. Amazing. Even even as them and a lot of their friends and allies within the, within China are doing their best to get as rich as they possibly can, grave diggers indeed. of capitalism. Yes. While <laughs> we make a lot of money. Yes, <laughs> indeed. indeed. <laughs> well, I think that's an important uh, place for us to end. Where can people go to find out more about commission and the, read the report and, and see more? Uh, our website is uscc.gov. In addition to the hearings that we hold, we usually hold about seven or eight hearings a year and the annual report that we do. We have a series of staff papers that are, that are listed on our report and we do some contracted research. So it's a good resource. There's a bunch of information out there and uh, we encourage people to take a look at it. Well, Robin Cleveland, Carolyn Bartholomew, thanks for being with us. Uh, really important report. You all should be commended, as should your staff. Thank you. Thanks so thank much, you. Andrew.